Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector. And I'm going to cut the intro a little bit short today because we have so much to talk about. A rebirth of socialism, perhaps? Could it be? Well, it used to be the case that when Americans heard the word socialism, they stopped thinking. But in March of this year, for a piece by a 27-year-old columnist named Elizabeth Brunig, uh, the Washington Post raised, ran this headline, It's Time to Give Socialism a Try. As our guest today opines, one imagines former publisher Catherine Graham spitting out her martini, seeing that. Well, it certainly is a world in changes. Republicans kowtowing to a president who's openly enamored of a dictatorial, murderous president of Russia. Then there's the Democratic Party. Republicans are clearly defined by their president, but Democrats? What the heck are they? At the moment of an historic opportunity to make great electoral gains, the Democratic Party, well, at least the at the DNC level, remains in a fog of indecision as to the best path for electoral victory in 2018 and beyond. The nominee in 2016 was a septum of this, openly cozying up to Wall Street financial powers, making sure never to upset those interests that provided the funding for her campaign. And perhaps you noticed uh, she lost. Amazingly enough, there are still many in the Democratic Party who would again aim for some imaginary but safe-sounding middle of the road. So what's a party to do? More and more are determined to, as the headline suggested, give democratic socialism a try. Horrors! Is this a path to self-destruction? Or might it actually connect with American voters and create a meaningful victory, beginning to move away from the rule by racists and aristocrats? Throughout the 2016 nominating process rose a stunningly popular underdog who brazenly called himself a democratic socialist. Of course, conventional wisdom dismissed this former mayor of Burlington and tiny Vermont, but despite the mainstream's media, mainstream media's studied policy of denying the candidate what should have been coverage of the startlingly dramatic story of his highly unlikely rise, Bernie Sanders made it powerfully to the top anyway. The powers that be were stunned. Socialism, he said that word. How could he be a serious contender? A socialist would, of course, be crushed in a general election. But is Sanders' brand of socialism really outside the mainstream of American politics? Our guest today, Gilad Edelman, editor of the Washington Monthly, asks in his own column, are today's young Bernie-inspired leftist intellectuals really just... New Deal liberals. Is it part of our American tradition? Gilad Edelman, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. 
glad to be here, and I was sad you cut the intro short. I was enjoying it. Ah, okay. Sorry about that. Well, it ended with uh, LBJ saying uh, something about uh, the uh, decency of humanity, something like that. The dignity of man, that's what he said. Hillary Clinton adherents constantly argued that she was the real Democrat and Bernie was not. But as one who sees Franklin Roosevelt as one of America's greatest presidents, I found myself wondering which of the two contenders FDR would recognize as a real Democrat. You write that Bernie's, quote, brand of socialism is defined in terms hardly indistinguishable from New Deal liberalism, end of quote, and that there's no denying much of what today's socialists are demanding fits in with the liberal tradition of a Ted Kennedy or Paul Wellstone. Oh, you said that stuff too. Uh, include into quotes. It really is about the identity of the Democratic Party. Of course, the holders of party power at the DNC in Washington must sense the support for the Bernie vision as a real threat to their base of power and income. But at the ground level across the country, the Ted Kennedy, Paul Wellstone traditional Democrats are organizing and taking power, at least at the local and state level. They're picking up steam. Any sense, uh, Gilad, whether the DNC is starting to, dare I say, feel the burn? That, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> and I don't hold myself out as an expert on, on what's going on inside sure. uh, Democratic Party leaders' brains. But as I, as I mentioned in the piece, so just for your, to bring your listeners up to speed, um, uh, when it comes to Bernie Sanders's relationship to FDR, a lot of that goes... One reason that I talk about that in the article is because back during the primary campaign in the fall of 2015, he gave this speech at Georgetown in which he defined his political philosophy, and he explicitly linked himself to Franklin Roosevelt. He mentioned Roosevelt, he mentioned Martin Luther King, and he did not mention... Of you know, well, King wasn't did call himself a socialist, but Bernie didn't mention anybody like Eugene Debs or anything mm-hmm. like that. He said, mm-hmm. "I don't believe the government should own the corner drugstore or the means of production, but I do believe the middle class and the working families who produce the wealth of America deserve a fair deal." Mm-hmm. So he sort of muddied the waters um, on what the socialist label means by describing it in pretty unobjectionable terms. I mean, who who doesn't think that working families deserve a fair deal? Um, as I mentioned in the piece, you can think of the effect Bernie has had on the left, broadly defined, so, you know, kind of left of center, mm-hmm. not non-conservatives. Mm-hmm. You, there's sort of two ways in which he's he's impacted it. He has shifted the center of gravity. So, um if you were, you know, more of a centrist Democrat or a party leader um, trying to determine the agenda for the party, it's undeniable that he's pulled you, he's likely pulled you farther to the left. We've got lots of leading 2020 contenders coming out in favor of Medicare for all, universal jobs guarantee, policies that were not part really on the table pre-Bernie, pre-2016. Yeah. But at the same time, something that I think has gotten a little bit less attention is that is that if you were already a real leftist, a radical, a, a self an avowed right. socialist, particularly a young person, there's a good chance that Bernie has sort of pulled you a little bit 
closer to the center hmm. with his gravitational force. Um, and the reason, or one reason, is that when you don't think you've got any chance at winning, you can afford purity, yeah. illogical purity. <laughs> uh. And as soon as uh, Bernie showed that, hey, you know, the, the socialist label is not as toxic as we thought, suddenly you start to think, okay, people are going to listen to what I have to say. Well, you know, we might actually be able to win. And as soon as you start thinking that way, you've got you know, to start making some sacrifices to what's, what's practical. Yes, practicality. And uh, there is the, boy, I've seen it a lot, the purity on the left. And it, it's kind of really self-destructive. And, and people fight over what's real left, what's real socialism, what's real Marxism. And it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter to Americans. But you write, and this, I think this is an interesting quote, very interesting, relative to what you just said about the pull of Bernie reaching people of, you know, like the real left, because there hasn't really been much of a w what Europe would recognize as the left here in the United States. But you write that, quote, the American left of center is like a soft mattress, and Bernie is an anvil dropping in the middle. Whichever side you're lying on, gravity pulls you a little closer to him. I wonder if you could say more about that, please. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, as I was mentioning before, it, his, his, he's clearly shifted the center of gravity as far as like yeah. policy in, in the Democratic Party to the oh, left, yes. away from the center. Um, but if you look at you know, one example I use, I kind of I pick, you could say I pick on them a little bit is Jacobin Magazine, right, um, sure. which has been around for several years, uh, almost a decade, founded by a very dynamic, it's still only twenty nine year old uh, guy named Bhaskar Sankara, while, while he was still an undergrad, and that has been uh, sort of the leading socialist, communist, um, kind of a broad broad tent, but leftist publication, especially yes. among young people. Um, they've got a pretty big readership. The, the, their tagline is reason in revolt. You know, they public, you know, there's people, uh, debating Marxist theory and talking about the lessons of the Russian revolution. Um, and yet one thing I noticed is that since, uh, summer 2015, it's gotten much more Bernie-centric, which is understandable. I mean, Bernie became a nationally prominent figure. Yes. Um, but I did, as sort of a crude, very crude measure of this, I just went through all their issues and did a Control-F on my keyboard looking for Marx and Bernie or Sanders or Bernie Sanders. Mm. And What'd you uh, find? Across the first, I, I forget the exact number, but something like 15 issues pre-2015, um, Marx came up a lot, yeah. and then he, the 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 Marx hit rate really started to drop post summer of 2015. At the same time as uh -huh. Bernie started getting a lot of play, appearing <laughs> on covers of the magazine, you know, having Q and A's with him in the magazine, sort of becoming a really celebrated figure in the magazine. Um, Interesting. And if you're like a, re you know, some people who are, you know, who who take this really seriously and consider themselves, you know, really, really of the left, yes, see this with dismay. Yes. Um, I I quote one writer in my piece 
named Frederick de Boer, who wrote that the left, quote, seemed to be falling into the models of the welfare state without really knowing we're doing it, sliding rightward as we talk about a reinvigorated Ooh. left slouching towards liberalism. And the, what people mean when they say that is, and it's a little bit foreign to, to discourse here, because as you say, we just don't have the tradition of real left right. as they've got in Europe, but leftists distinguish between, I'm telling you things you already know, but they distinguish between democratic socialism on the one hand and social democracy on the other hand, um, two terms that are pretty annoyingly similar sounding, um, but the, the, the sort of dividing line is, well, are you, are you pushing for actual increased state ownership um, or are you just talking about expanding the welfare state? but keeping capitalism in place. Right, right. And Bernie gets grief from some uh, on the left, mm-hmm. some socialists, for being insufficiently committed to getting rid of capitalism. Right. Well, <laughs> too bad. You know, this is America where... You know, there there is a socialist tradition, that's for sure. Uh, I think uh, it, it was strongest with, as you mentioned, Eugene Debs. Uh, but, you know, it's it's got a long way to go. And people in America, you know, it, it's amazed me how they've kind of uh, worshipped wealthy people. I mean, over the years, I've been perplexed. How often I've seen the homes of really impoverished people hosting political signs for really rich people or candidates who are eager to serve the richest among us. The people voted for a guy who claimed to be super rich in 2016, as we know. Uh, and Americans have long loved rich people. Everybody wants to be rich. And, you know, certainly Hillary Clinton had no reluctance cozying up, obviously, to the richest rather than go to working class focused events. And, uh, you know, the DNC has traditionally curried favor with the same top, you know, 1% income people. Uh, I find it fascinating to me how uh, just a few days ago, America's richest men, men, of course, were named uh, on uh, one of the TV networks. The top is Amazon's Jeff Bezos, who Trump hates, by the way. I mean, just despises him, I think, because he's really rich. And Trump is not so rich. The re- the report said his his worth is 155 billion dollars. And when one considers that a billion is a thousand million, that Bezos number Bezos number strikes me as as really sickening. Your your article points out that Nathan Robinson wrote in Current Affairs, titled "It's basically just immoral to be rich." Somehow, I don't think such sentiment will play very well in America. And you know, I've been a candidate myself. And I've lost, and I've won. And it is better to win. It really is. You can get your agenda into reality. Where does this new pragmatic democratic socialism fit in with, with this discussion and, and with you know, the long, uh, how long people have been enamored with, with rich people in America? That's a good question. And I want to just like pull apart two different critiques that you just made. So... When I said that Bernie gets grief for not being sufficiently hostile to capitalism in terms of you know his his policy agenda, and you said, "Well, too bad." Um, I think um, you know, of course, get, you know, getting rid of capitalism 
I, one thing that I struggle with in the piece, and I try to figure out, is what the, what does that even mean? You know, and none of the smart young thinkers who I talked to were saying, uh, you know, what we need is complete state control and centralized planning for all aspects of the economy. So, you know, there's people on the spectrum, and there are definitely people who are arguing for increased state ownership of of certain aspects of the economy, uh, which, by the way, you know, sign me up for increased state ownership of the healthcare system, for example. Absolutely. I think that's Um, popular, yeah. And and I think think this points to... um, uh, I want to come back to the point about uh, the, the rich um, to your question, but I just I also wanted to say that there's something uniquely American uh, about uh, how we the standard we impose on um, people who call themselves socialists. In other words, hmm. we understand liberal and conservative to be r- relative to each other. What is a conservative really? someone who's more conservative than someone who's a liberal. There's not, there's not some core ideological commitment that you have to uh, have to yeah. count as a conservative in today's society. Socialism is a little different. I found, I found myself doing this, and I've certainly found a lot of you know, other writers and commentators doing this. It's almost as if, well, oh, you call yourself a socialist? Well, if you don't believe uh, in doing away with markets and a complete state takeover of all aspects of society, you're not really a socialist. But of course, you know, in Europe, that's not the case at all. I mean, there are socialist parties, there are socialist governments, and it kind of is understood and accepted to define a place on the political spectrum. And so I think I kind of went into this article ready to roll my eyes more at people who call themselves socialists, but one thing I decided or realized is it's not crazy to want a term that stakes out some terrain on that political spectrum that is not getting captured by the existing terminology. So mm. people say, oh, you call yourself a socialist, but you know the things that you're arguing for, like you know, uh, single-payer health care, you know, liberals used to argue for that. Well, okay, that, that's true. But if liberals don't argue for it anymore, mm. then why should someone who wants things like that have to call themselves a liberal? And so when it comes to the whole, so, so how does that relate to the whole, like, let's get rid of capitalism thing? I think that this actually leads into the other point you raise about our attitudes toward the rich. I think some, some of, the, of what's going on with the growth of um, young people's turn away from the word capitalism, Mm -hmm. which is reflected in not just in the writings of socialist intellectuals, but also in polls that ask young people what they think about capitalism versus socialism. Um, Part of it is that capitalism has come to seem synonymous with extreme wealth, extreme concentration of wealth. Mm -hmm. That Jeff Bezos Mm -hmm. is kind of the face of capitalism. And so some people, when they say, I don't like capitalism, they're kind of what they're kind of saying is, um, I don't like a form of uh, political economy in which there's a few people with billions right. and billions of dollars, and then there's millions of people who can barely afford uh, a hospital bill. Right. And if you're so, I'm 30. If you're my age, you don't know you don't know a different kind. Mm. 
I mean, the, the, the America that we live in is the product of sort of the end point of a lot of policy choices that were made a little bit before I was born. Yeah. And so, you know, part of the, part of the job for any liberal leader is to show voters, I think, that it doesn't, that the way we've structured the economy and the, and, and our political system is not inevitable. It doesn't have to be this way. For sure, it doesn't, and it's it's important, I think, for people to to learn a little history. And I've certainly, as a a Bernie supporter, when Bernie uh, did come out for the Democratic Party nominee, uh, some people on the left were furious. They said he's a sellout, but at least there was some possibility. I mean, was, you're right. I mean, the difference between liberal and conservative, not that Trump is a conservative, he's just Trump, but uh, is not that great and people do on the left do get frustrated with that oh well both the democrats and the republicans are serving the same master the master of capitalism and they don't remember and it's obviously way before your time i was born in the 50s and we had believe it or not a very large middle class in america where people participated in the capitalist system and a lot of people made out okay they really did. And this was uh, uh, a, 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 certainly way to the left of where we are now. But that was, I don't think people would have the same bad feelings about capitalism back then. And it is, you know, oddly enough, I, Eisenhower, uh, a Republican, called for a 92% tax rate on certain amounts above a certain level. It didn't become law. But there was great peace and prosperity then. We had a large middle class then. And yeah, there is a significant degree of socialism in the New Deal. I, I just want to identify Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Gilad Edelman, editor of Washington Monthly. And his column is, are today's young Bernie-inspired left intellectuals really just New Deal liberals? And certainly ever since the New Deal... I mean, that's been like the definition of the Republican Party being wanting to destroy the New Deal ever since then. Uh, you know, we, since we have to define terms, let's start with defining what it is the Republicans so despise the New Deal. Is New Deal liberalism a kind of socialism, perhaps a uniquely American kind? And, and maybe it's something that... Uh, being, as I say, uniquely American, can start to really kick in and uh, and and be uh, you know rising now and and something that uh, we can carry forward and have some uh, political momentum in twenty eighteen and twenty twenty. Is New Deal liberalism a kind of socialism? I mean, in in twenty eighteen, I think there's at least an argument that that it, that it's not crazy to say that. Um, if if you accept if you accept that these terms are that the meaning of these terms are have to be relative to things that take place in time um then the the both the policies and the values underlying new deal the new deal are certainly as far or rather they're much farther to the left of the prevailing consensus than yes. they were when the new deal happened yeah that was pretty centrist back then um well, slightly to the left. Although, at, now that you mention it, I, you know, my my 
parents used to tell me that the people called uh, Franklin Roosevelt a traitor to his class, and they did call him a socialist at the time. Yeah, well, it's funny, you know. So, so uh, some people there, there's 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 a there's sort of a subset of outraged liberals who say who are mad at people like Bernie Sanders and his supporters uh, for appropriating the you know the liberal tradition and calling it socialism, and huh. which I kind of get, and I I, I cite oh, this essay by a, by the historian Sean Wilentz who says who accuses Bernie of being dishonest when he says I'm a I'm a democratic socialist and I believe in what Franklin Roosevelt believed in and one one data point that these people always use is well Franklin Roosevelt didn't call himself a socialist right well okay i mean if we agree that what you call yourself is determinative then that seems to kind of prove too much mm-hmm. um there's got to be there's got to be something beyond how someone self identifies because if not, then whose word do we, you know, why do we take Roosevelt's word over Bernie Sanders's word? They're both describing themselves. So that can't really be the rule. And so it might be that, you know, when the conservatives accused Roosevelt of being a socialist, I mean, did the New Deal push the United States further in the direction of socialism? Sure. Sure it did, right? If, if sure. these things exist on a spectrum. Um and you know if if the if the sine qua non of um, uh, I've never said that out loud, and I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> if the <laughs> I think you did fine. That's how I would do it. <laughs> My dad's not listening. Um, um, of socialism is state ownership. Then you know state ownership is also something that exists on a spectrum. We just don't really think about it. I mean, you know, the states pay for the roads. Yes. Right. Um, the, the, the public schools, like yes. our public schools, socialism, kind of. You could kind have of, all yeah. private schools. Um, so, if you want, if you just want more of that than we've got now, um, even if you still see room for private industry and private business, um, does that count as wanting to make the country more socialist? Uh, I suppose it does. I suppose. And and many people say, and I think there's a large degree of truth to this, that uh, that FDR's socialist programs kind of saved capitalism from itself. And if we have a uh, uh, laissez-faire uh, uh, ca- capitalism, which uh, so many on the right want these days with no regulations, no controls, uh, it has a uh, tendency, I believe, to, to self-destruct. There has to be, you know, some kind of... Uh, uh, checks and balances. FDR certainly called for. Uh, I don't. I wish I could remember exactly what he said about uh, that. That the corporations should serve the common good. That is a concept that would freak people out on the right. They they think that uh, you know that's not the way it's supposed to be. But under the New Deal, which there are those who may not be familiar with it. There were a lot of uh, public works programs. Uh, Social Security came into existence then. Medicare is a result of that, that LBJ uh, brought that next phase in. Uh, that was some degree of, you're right, socialism, and it helped uh, save the American economy. And, you know, the fascists were rising all around the world at the time, and uh, I certainly wouldn't have wanted that. But what happened to private business during the FDR New Deal. It 
it actually it actually did thrive, did it not? And, and Eisenhower continued the New Deal programs, really. How, Absolutely, and and that's I, you 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 get to a really important point that I don't think is nearly appreciated enough, which is that we we've accepted this binary so much of free market versus government, right? Um, and when we talk about the New Deal, the we, you know, we understandably tend to grab like the 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 big ticket items are expansions of the welfare state, but the administ- the Roosevelt administration did something else that was really important, maybe, maybe even more important, which is that it implemented really aggressive uh, antitrust and pro competition policy. Yes. So Roosevelt was really concerned about concentration of economic power, not just you know rates of poverty or or wealth distribution but who has power in the economy um you know in his in a speech in 1936 he he talks about how uh throughout the nation opportunity was limited by monopoly individual initiative was crushed in the cogs of a great machine the field open for free business was more and more restricted um so roosevelt had a you know and this this really backs up his non-socialist bona fides. He, Roosevelt had a real sense of the dangers of letting big business get too big. And the antitrust enforcement regime that began under his administration and lasted at least through the 1960s took a really aggressive stance oh, yeah. um, against in, in industry consolidation and would block a lot of mergers and other behaviors that threatened to... Um, concentrate economic power too much, and and so competition, leaving you know setting the rules so that Americans had a fairer shot to start their own business and be successful it was a huge part of what made this the post-war era in particular uh, so good for so many people, um, and. That abruptly changed beginning in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And I allude to this somewhat in the piece. Yes, it, this, I've written, I've written um, more pieces kind of all about this for the Washington Monthly. Um, and for your listeners, uh, if, if they're curious, you can check out a piece I wrote last year called De- The Democrats Confront Monopoly about the sort of ah. tentative reawakening of this. But to, to, to give an overly simplified and, uh, summary of what happened, beginning with the Reagan administration, essentially, federal policy towards um, economic consolidation basically flipped on its head. Prior to that, the, the basic feeling had been um, consolidation and mergers are presumptively kind of bad. We really need to worry about businesses getting too big, blocking out the sun, controlling too much of the market. And that was replaced in the Reagan administration with the exact opposite feeling of, you know, consolidation is generally good. It usually makes businesses more efficient. If they, if it was, you know, if they become less efficient, some other competitor will swoop in under the rules of the free market, and so we don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And ever since, and this is something there's there's a through line that you know the Clinton Clinton did this became the main, the dogma really of both parties, um, right up through the end of the Obama administration. Um, and not coincidentally, in the in these four decades now, we've seen an incredible increase in economic consolidation across industries. And there's a lot of really cutting edge research 
suggesting that this is a major driver of wage stagnation, inequality, regional inequality. And it kind of aligns with a lot of our lived experiences, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned Jeff Bezos. He's sort of the the 21st century face of, in, uh, of you know, incipient monopoly and return to the Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, ro- th- this was a big part of Roosevelt's economic legacy that doesn't get talked about as much. Yeah, taking on the monopolies. And, and if I remember my history correctly, and of course everybody has their own take on history, uh, when we had the War of Independence, it was about uh, a government of, by, and for the people, as opposed to what we experienced at the time where the aristocrats were the government, owned the government, the government worked for the aristocrats and royalty, and uh, it seems kind of like people calling themselves conservatives now actually are favoring that. So it's really in American tradition to to have more democracy and more people able to participate in the capitalist system. And I think what you're talking about here with, with Roosevelt taking on the, uh, the big corporations, the trusts as they were known at the time, that enables more people to actually participate in the, uh, the free market. Uh, I thought it was uh, interesting. Many years ago, I had the uh, unique honor of interviewing Gore Vidal, uh, 1980, and he talked about in America there is socialism, socialism for the richest and free market for everyone else. In other words, the government works for, you know, provides a great safety net for the super rich people, but everybody else, you know, has to, has to struggle with that. And uh, it, 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 it does seem that that has happened to a large degree. And the idea of having, you know, more safety net for more people, which with such simple things as, as Medicare for all, you know, expanding on the socialism that we have now, like, as you say, police, firefighters, snow plowing, public schools, uh, which some on the right have called government schools, roads and bridges. This is some degree of socialism. And, you know, it, it actually in 1948, uh, Arthur Schlesinger published a book called The Vital Center describing the American middle as a mix of capitalism and socialism. And and as you were saying, FDR was really clear in insisting that the big corporations must serve the common good. And that seems like a rather practical solution uh, to many of today's challenges. Places like Scandinavian countries are examples of socialist countries. Bernie Sanders often points to as good examples from which we can learn much. I mean, there's all the... Uh, so-called socialist countries, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, uh, many, many places that we would not want to emulate. That's a different kind of socialism. But as you point out, the Scandinavian countries have something called a social wealth fund. I had not heard of that before. What is the social wealth fund, and and what ways might it be applicable? Yeah, so... um uh, the as I write in the piece, the the example of uh, Scandinavian countries and particularly Norway loom pretty large in in the writings of people who are trying to make the case for socialism in the United States. Um, a social wealth fund uh, is, or or also called a sovereign wealth fund, um, is just a a fund that is uh, where invested in by the government on behalf of the people. So Norway's got one. It's 
huge, and they use it to pay for. They use it to fund their their extremely generous uh, welfare state. Um, the the state of Alaska has one. Alaska oh, has right. an investment fund, and they pay a dividend. They pay a cash dividend to everybody from Alaska. True. Um, when and a lot of people say, "Oh, well, that that's just the oil money. We couldn't do that nationwide." Well, first of all, yeah, they used they invested oil money up front, but it's just they're it's not like they're not selling the oil and then giving money to people. The, their oil revenue was just a way to start the investment fund. Oh. Um, you could you could invest. There's there's many ways you could do that uh, on a larger scale. Uh, second, the United States is an oil rich nation, so it's Very not nice. really much of a you know it's not like we don't have uh, um, our own fossil fuel uh, uh, revenue source. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> That's but for sure. the reason this is the reason that um, that the Scandinavian model is interesting is because as you kind of alluded to the sort of all-purpose Trump card, especially for, you know, conservatives, responding to advocates for socialism or more socialism or whatever is, oh, well, you, well look at Venezuela. Oh, look at China. Look right. at the Soviet Union. Um, as if these are the definitions of socialism because they call themselves socialists. Right. And so one thing that some of these socialist writers, particularly a, a guy named Matt Brunig, who uh-huh. is married to Liz Brunig, who is the Washington Post columnist, who whose column you mentioned at the top of the show? Yeah. Um, and a, a drum that he really keeps beating is, look, if the if if the rule is that it's not socialism unless the state owns much of the economy, well, the Norwegian government owns twice as much of the economy as the Chinese government. Huh. And so, by that measure, it's wow. if you want to call that socialism, then Norway is by far the most socialist place on earth. <laughs> and the reason that matters is because. Everybody kind of agrees that Norway sounds like a pretty sweet place to live. Yeah, it's got very high happiness quotient at the time. It, and wow, that's interesting. It's so different from what uh, what most people think. But that is kind of so. And there is a lot of capitalism in Norway, I believe. Yeah, I mean, this, you, it's not like uh, you have to wait on a breadline <laughs> to get your rations from the government store. Right. There's there's models. There, this is a subtlety that I don't even know if I executed it very well in my piece. But you know, government ownership doesn't have to mean central control. We live in in the, in the modern hmm. economy. Ownership is not the same thing as management. True. Um, no, that's a very you know, interesting. Think about point. a mutual fund, right? Yeah. What what is a mutual fund? Well, they own shares, so they 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 are owners of companies. Do they run the companies? No. So the 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 idea with the social wealth fund and one thing that it's 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 an idea that's been around. Um one thing that's kind of neat about it is that it's kind of just a way of redirecting the proceeds yes from the market. If it, it replace an replace a private investor with the government and funnel the dividends or the the profits from um, the, the, the rising value of the stock yeah. to the public rather than those private investors. Well, you haven't, up to a point, you haven't changed how the economy works. You've just changed who the beneficiaries are. I think there's an argument that, you know, eventually you'd start to wonder, well, if everybody, there are dangers in common ownership. Yes. And that gets back to the question of competition. Yeah. 
and I, I do think, and I, I get, I get at this point somewhat in the piece that I think that if the focus is just on expanding the welfare state, giving people more stuff that they need, mm. which I'm all, you know, which is important. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a danger of overlooking um, the issue of concentrated economic power because if you don't deal with this problem of sectors of the economy being dominated by one or two or three major players, whether it's drugstores, where it's three companies own 99% of drugstores, or whether it's airlines, there's only four major airlines, or, you know, whether it's cable TV, where you might only have one provider. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. If you don't deal with that, you're not dealing with the problem, the Jeff Bezos problem, the problem of people just having too much power, corporations having too much power. Uh, it, it screws up our democracy. It screws up um, the economy. It's, it kind of stifles the economy. So you've got to deal with that issue as well. Wow, interesting. Yes, you do. And and if people want competition, uh, if there's too much power at the top, if, if there's more and more power and money concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, that's something different from... I mean, I, I think that's kind of outside most of the American mainstream, but it seems to be happening here. Trickle up theory. Uh, if you just tuned Absolutely. in, go ahead. An analogy that my, my boss, Paul Glasser, likes to use yes. is, you know, one thing that makes the NFL fun is the worst team gets the highest draft pick and the best team gets the lowest draft ah, pick. True. And that's one way that it helps stay competitive and it's fun. And in the um, the American economy is like the best team gets the best draft pick. It's like right. if you know, imagine if the Patriots got the number one pick every year. Right, That's the right. world we live in. <laughs> That's a very good point. That's I had not thought of that before. But you're right about you know the people like that. It's fairness, and it would it would be nuts to have the top team get the number one draft pick. You're right, absolutely. Yeah, I mean you you need rules if you if you want a competition <laughs> to be fun and and. And to have a you know not have the same winner every year, you gotta ha- you gotta set up the rules the right way. Boy, one would think, but, but that doesn't fit on a bumper sticker as well as Medicare <laughs> for all. That's kind of the problem. Well, I do think Medicare for all is the way to win. People get that, they understand that, uh, and I think it's a it's a good way to do it. I mean, you know, you had Make America Great Again, what you know, and it worked. The other idea of uh, as uh, of the what the the centrists and the Perez people talk about. Uh, a better deal. What the heck is that? Nobody has any idea. We need to be very specific. And I think, you know, you're pointing out about increasing competition and uh, having more than just the top uh, uh, benefit that, uh, that, that, that can, people can understand that. And if you have more access to capital even, uh, they're in North Dakota, I believe, not a particularly socialist state. They have public banks there. And, you know, that can reduce taxes for a lot of people, paying less interest on on uh, municipal projects and things like that. It, it can happen. We're talking about uh, a potential rise of democratic socialism. And you talked before about, you know, what happened in the 70s. You know, after World War II, uh, international capital flows were restrained and nations were able to spend aggressively on social programs funded by fairly high tax rates. And that was the greatest growth in productivity and living standards in history, as you point out. I mean, it was fab- in the 50s, it was peace and prosperity. 
Uh, why did this order break down in the 1970s, giving rise to such leaders as Thatcher and Reagan, if it worked so well? Yeah, I mean, I think we're gonna we're gonna come to the the limits of my my mastery of history and political economy, but I'll go for it. This the, this question is really at the heart of the the debate between the intellectual debate between socialists and what you might call like left liberals. Right. Um, a socialist would say the reason this broke down is capitalism. It was inevitable. Um, World War II was this earth-shaking event that really scrambled everything. Europe was in ruins. We had this kind of consensus of what to do after, the Marshall Plan and um, the Bretton Woods Agreement, and there was sort of uh, unique circumstances that allowed um, a more hu- capitalism, that allowed capitalism essentially to be tamed uh, in the form of capital. Um, restrictions on international capital flow and high tax rates and things like policy choices like that. But the socialists will say it was inevitable that the forces of capitalism would eventually claw back those gains, reassert themselves, tear down um, these structures that had been built. Now, uh, a non-socialist on the left uh, I, I cite the, uh, a recent book by Bob Kuttner, the longtime editor of The American Prospect and a, a really insightful writer. Yeah. He, he makes the point that this wasn't inevitable. There were choices made in the 1970s and 80s to move away from this stuff that was working. Um, right. Unions were weakened. Right. Antitrust, he doesn't talk as much about antitrust, but antitrust policy was, was, was reversed. Um, restrictions on international capital flows uh, were loosened so that basically um, the you know the capitalist class could abandon a country that was trying to you know do things like tax them aggressively, um, which sort of led to a race to the bottom. Yes. Um, if you if you're worried about capital fleeing, then you're going to accede to its demands. So, and you know these policy choices were brought up. You know. What, what conditions led to those being made into the the Reagan and Thatcher revolution? I mean, part of it was this weird cocktail of um, of inflation and uh, and, un- and unemployment in the 1970s that really vexed economic planners and started to make the the system look unsustainable. I'm I'm talking as if I was around then. I was not. This is this is uh, the the product of my crash course in economic history that I put myself through when I was writing studied. this article. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but that, that, that's, that's kind of a big question, is how do you, what, what do you do to keep um, the capitalist class, as it were, from, from always clawing back whatever inroads you make against it? Right. It's a good question. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know that answer, but uh, I don't know. You know, we, we seemed pretty satisfied in, in the 50s with a, a large middle class and a, and a really competitive, really free market, and there were a lot of regulations then. You know, it seems to me that uh, some people on the right, you know, who don't want any controls at all, they don't even want food inspection. You know, they think that's government overreach. And I just, I don't know, it, it amazes me when they, they just don't want to look at, at what really helps a capitalist free market system thrive. And 
you know, as we approach at least one election, 2018, and, you know, everybody's looking at 2020 already. I think it's a little bit premature. But anyway, a lot of Democrat pundits, pundits openly worry about the party being dragged to the far left. First, I don't see any far left, quite frankly. There is no far left really in America. But And, and these doubters point out that corporate centrists like Bill Clinton and middle-of-the-road or Barack Obama won victories. What about the argument that just in order to win, Democrats really need not to go to the left, but to pivot to the center, as they did so successfully in mm-hmm. 1992. What about that that argument, which yeah, we hear a yeah. lot? I, a couple of things. One, the world things are different in today than they were in 1992, and I think that you you know I'm too young to remember it well, but I think that there was a real sense that. Goodness, this is just a conservative country, and you got a, a Democrat has to get more conservative, yeah, make some yep. concessions to win. That was a conventional um, wisdom, yeah. And I think there's probably some validity to that. Um, whereas it's pretty clear. I mean, well, I shouldn't say it's clear, but there's a wealth of polling data that shows that at least on economic policy, Americans are way to the left. Americans are not really that conservative, right? Um, and and unfor- unfortunately, just aren't really making voting decisions based on policy at all. Absolutely, uh, it's it's really based on identity. But <laughs> another point I wanted to make is that it's just really hard to draw lessons from things like Bill Clinton or Barack Obama winning elections. Could they have won without you know? Could they have been more to the left than won? Maybe they were super charismatic. I mean, Barack exactly. Obama True. is like you know a, a Wayne Gretzky level politician, uh, mm. orator, um, Tom Brady. Got, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tom Brady. Sure. I'm, uh, I'm a New York guy, so I don't Sorry. like to praise the Patriots, <laughs> but sure. Um, so but charisma and celebrity. I mean, let's, here we have a guy who's, you know, who's president now. It's like entirely based on celebrity status and that people don't look at policy positions so much anymore. But that that is a very much concern. I don't know. I was a little bit surprised with the charisma that Bernie Sanders has, but apparently he does. And I don't know how we can get people to pay more attention to policies and positions on issues. Yeah, That's I'm not even sure it's true that people pay less attention to policy than they used to. I just uh, think we political scientists have learned have have learned more about how the voters' mind works, and it ain't always pretty. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I think there there was something that was really striking. Uh, you know, uh, the, the the precise details escaped me, but it was go back to during the the primary between Bernie and Hillary, and I remember reading, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal about a poll, and it asked about Bernie and, and Hillary, and Bernie did better among respondents who thought the next president should be more conservative. Whoa! So that is a, that just shows you that people were not necessarily responding to Bernie's policy positions and where he places himself on the ideological spectrum. And I think that a mistake that everybody is susceptible to is when somebody who agrees with you is popular, you think it's because they agree with you. So for people yeah. on the left, they think, "Look, Bernie is a really popular politician." It must be that Americans want um, his policy agenda. Right. 
But it may be something a little different from that. To to go oh, back to your question of how he managed to play so well, um, I think people are really people really crave authenticity. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, here we're this show is coming from New Hampshire, and we get to see all the presidential wannabes up close and personal many times over. Mm. And we have this on both sides, Democrat and Republican, authenticity. You can really, really tell if somebody's authentic or not. And he came across as authentic. And you're right, that's not even relevant to his position on the issues, but he's for real. Hillary, not so much. You know, people didn't exactly know. And, and, and there were a lot of people here who were between Trump and Bernie Sanders. It makes no sense politically, but they were. I think it's that authenticity thing. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. we got a few minutes left. We're talking about uh, a potential rise of democratic socialism. Our guest is Gilad Edelman, editor of the distinguished Washington Monthly. And, all right, there are millennials. Millennials feel like uh, liberalism doesn't represent their values, traditional liberalism. Uh, and and uh, you raised the point, perhaps it's time for liberalism to win them back. And and thinking of millennials, yeah, they th- no question the polling shows that they react negatively to the word capitalism, but not so negatively to the word socialism. What about the heartland? I mean, there used to be in America, uh, the, the heartland used to be pretty left-leaning back in the early part of the 20th century. We're a long ways away from that. But, but can this stuff say, I mean, Bernie may or may not run, I don't know. But I wonder if these positions while very popular with millennials, can they uh, connect with the heartland of America? What are your thoughts on this, Gilad? Um, I think they can. I think that the answer to how to win back the heartland is sort of unsatisfying because, as we were just discussing, I I just don't think the shift, the rightward shift in a place like Wisconsin or mm-hmm. Michigan mm. uh, yeah. has much to do with policy agendas. Um, oh, interesting. I think it has to do with cultural grievance ah. and resentment. And that's not to say that I think that policy platforms aren't important. I'm just not sure that that's really where these shifts, especially among white voters, are really happening. But, but, I, go, you know, going back to something we talked about earlier in the show, you, in, in my piece, and you, you zoned it, you homed in on this, I, I quote the writer Nathan Robinson, who, who writes, it's basically just immoral to be rich. Right. And as you point out, that's, you know, Americans love rich people for right. some crazy reason. Even rich people who uh, creeps <laughs> treat them like crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think I think the just I think the challenge for the left uh, for Democrats mm-hmm. is to try to get at least some of the Trump constituency to realize that the people who are screwing you are not black people and immigrants and public sector employees. You are getting screwed, but it's not by them. 
It's by people like Donald Trump. It's by the super wealthy, and it's by corporations whose profits are at all-time highs, even as your salary is not going up. You need some of that kind of antagonism. And I don't think that that's going to win over everybody. Right. But I think it could win over some people. And, I mean, I wrote about this the day of, of Trump's inauguration. It just drove me crazy that hmm. I feel like we're going to be talking about this till we till we all dead, but that Hillary Clinton just wouldn't do that at all. Um, yeah, wouldn't you gotta, you tell gotta... a different story for why people were hurting. Right. And I think that's, I think that's the key. You're not going to win out over everybody. Um, you're not going to wipe out racial resentment, um, cultural grievance. But I think if, if I were in the politics business rather than the journalism business, I would be trying to tell a different story about how people are getting screwed, a truer story. No, I think you're absolutely right. People need to, to get with that. And I think there's certainly an opportunity with, with uh, a lot of the uh, jobs, frankly, going overseas with this trade war. It's going to hurt a lot of Trump uh, Trump's base, for sure. Fascinating discussion, and I just wanted to mention that uh, uh, Democratic Socialist member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez upset longtime Congressman Joseph Crowley. She says what we're witnessing in embryo is the emergence of a new way of approaching left-wing politics. Time will tell. Well, if people are interested in following your articles in Washington Monthly, what uh, can you direct them to online? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter, at Gilad Edelman. Um, and you can also uh, find my most recent article on our homepage. It's part of our July-August issue, and the headline is The Socialist Network. So go to WashingtonMonthly.com if you want to read more about this stuff. Well, I hope we can talk again. This is very interesting. And uh, politics in America, whew, boy, it's interesting this time of year, 2018 and 2020. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, maybe this is the time. Celebration. This is no time for shaking hands. This is no time for backslapping. This is no time for marching bands. This is no time for optimism. This is no time for endless thought. This is no time for my country right or wrong. Remember what that brought. There is no time. There is no time. There is no time There is no time This is no time for congratulations This is no time to turn your back This is no time for circumlocution This is no time for learned speech This is no time to count your blessings This is no time for profit gain This is a time to put up a shut up it won't come back this way again There is no time There is no time There is no time There is no time This is no time to swallow anger This is no time to ignore hate This is no time to be acting frivolous Because the time is getting late 
This is no time for private vendettas. This is no time to not know who you are. Self-knowledge is a dangerous thing, the freedom of who you are. This is no time to ignore warnings. This is no time to clear the plate. Let's not be sorry after the fact and let the past become our faith. There is no...